When was the last time you learned something new? And how long did it take you to understand that thing? Today on the show, we are talking competency-based learning with Sarah Tahir. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. I found Sarah and her writing about competency-based learning, or CBL, after I did a course this summer with Global Online Academy, where Sarah is the Associate Director of Professional Learning. In this conversation, we discuss Global Online Academy and the professional learning needs they are addressing in this pandemic. We talk about the differences between how school works and how learning works, and we get into the nitty-gritty of CBL and how to use it in your classroom. Listen, realistically, you are likely not in a place to overhaul your course, your next unit, or even your next week in the classroom. So listen to this conversation, not with the lens of you're not doing it right and this is the right way to do it, but as a possibility for what learning could look like in your classroom. Perhaps after a good, long, relaxing March break or a relaxing summer, you might remember some of these ideas and play around with them in your own context. I so loved getting to talk to Sarah and how we might make the learning in our classroom reflect more how learning looks in the world outside the classroom. So let's get to it. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to get to talk to you about pedagogy and learning and competency-based learning. Um, Let's just start with a quick warm-up. Why don't you tell everyone who you are, where you live, and what you do? My name is Sarah Tahir, and I am an Associate Director of Professional Learning at Global Online Academy, or GOA. Uh, GOA is a nonprofit learning organization, and our mission is to empower both students and educators to thrive in a globally networked society. I work on the professional learning team, uh, where we focus on building capacity and shifting educator practice to promote deeper learning for students. And so We offer courses, programs, and workshops to teachers and schools around the world. And I am currently based out of Austin, Texas. And that's how I found you through the Global Online Academy. I actually did a course with them this summer. And then I started obviously going down your amazing rabbit hole of resources and information. And I started reading all these articles that you had been writing. I'm like, I need to be best friends with her. I need to pick her brain. (laughs) Um, So actually, let's start with Global Online Academy. So how did you find them? What is your journey in education? Like, take us through who you are, because you obviously didn't start off in Global Online Academy. Like, where were you before that? And what is your journey in education? Sure. So I guess let me let me dial back and answer the journey to education part. And then we can kind of get into how I ended up at GOA. So in terms of just I guess who I am as a person, I've always viewed myself as someone who's always kind of playing catch up in life, kind of a late bloomer in a myriad of regards. Um, but I think what I lack in innate ability or talent, uh, I've really been able to make up for by working hard and kind of taking my time to learn. Um, and that's been a really important piece for me. And so a combination of kind of patience, persistence, and then mentors who've been models for what's possible, that's really had a huge piece in my professional life. And so, um, my journey towards education was a bit of an accident. Uh, and this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but it's yes. going to lead us kind of back to your question. But um, yeah, it was a total accident in some ways. In my mind, I, I thought I might become a teacher a little bit later on in life, 
you know, as a second career, something like that. But um, for me, being a lawyer was actually always the plan, as I think it is for many highly motivated uh, English majors in college. And so I thought being a lawyer would be a way for me to really fulfill the purpose that I saw for my life, which was to help people. Um, But there was kind of a major barrier to realizing that vision. And that barrier was law school. Uh, (laughs) And so, yeah, so it was interesting. In the fall of um, 2011, I enrolled at a T14 law school and I hated nearly every minute of it. Um, From the lifestyle to the people I was surrounded by, it was just not the place for me. And the biggest barrier, though, that was definitely the pedagogy of law school. And this is kind of where I think some of my interest in education came up. So the Socratic method piece that is common to most law schools, that was fine. But everything else about the way in which it was taught was very top down, very didactic and really steeped in theory that was very divorced from the actual practice of the law. Mm. Um, So that coupled with the fact that the incentive structure was was pretty dicey. Um, The way the grading curves worked meant that uh, school was more about competing with your classmates and outsmarting them rather than it was actually about learning. And so um, I dropped out after a semester and spent a little bit of time reflecting on what was at the time a pretty painful experience. Um, And Amidst that soul searching, though, I took a job as an adjunct at an independent school in Rhode Island uh, teaching Chinese. I had just spent a a lot of time in China after college and so had picked up enough of the language that I could teach it at a middle school and high school level. That's amazing. Yeah, right. So I kind kind of found myself in this situation where all of a sudden I was I was having to find a way to convey this sort of language knowledge that I had to students. And so my first day on the job, all of a sudden things really just clicked for me, that the classroom was where I was meant to be. um, And I could actually do the things that I wanted, which were really to help people. At the same time, I was also then able to kind of work through what I believed an education should and could be. And so over time, I returned back I went to graduate school and got my master's in teaching and secondary English ed, and then worked in independent schools up until the point at which I joined GOA, really with this idea of furthering this mission of what education can look like and should look like. Well, I'm really glad that you didn't finish law school because I think that it's working out for all of us. (laughs) I want to go back a little bit more though. Now I'm really curious, who were you as a student? Like, who were you when you were going through elementary, middle, high school? Like, did you at that point really like just nail school and were awesome at it? Were you somebody that struggled with it? Like, who were you as a learner growing up? Yeah, for me, I think as a learner, it's kind of a tale of two identities. So on, on one hand, I was someone who really just was very curious. I love to kind of go into deep dives around different topics, always, always love to read. And so that part of learning, I really enjoyed. I liked finding things out and kind of experimenting and, and, and exploring new ideas. But The other side of that was, I think I was someone who learned how to play the game of school very Mm. early. So in Mm. topics that I wasn't either as interested or as confident in, 
I could do enough to kind of make up for those pieces by just kind of playing the game of school. So getting all of my homework in, staying after school, asking the questions. And so it was interesting because I was a really strong student in terms of grading and reporting and all those pieces. But even though I think my grades in math and science classes were much higher in English and history, I could never say that I was a scientist or a mathematician. That's not where my interests were. Um, and so that, I think that was one of the first clues for me that, you know, maybe there is kind of a disconnect between how school works and how learning works. Ooh. Yes. I want to quote you on that. I want to like put that up <laughs> on my wall. That. <laughs> It's really well said. And yet it's interesting because like you could play the game, but then going to law school, you're just like, I don't want to play the game. Like that's exactly it. Yeah. It's like almost like you see the matrix and you're like, no, thank you. I'm (laughs) (laughs) Um, how did your parents feel when you told them you were dropping out of law school? Were they at all, you know, concerned for you when you told them that I want to become a teacher now? Were they relieved? Were they like law would have been better for you? Like what would how did they factor into those major life choices? Yeah, that's a really good question. So they, they've always been really encouraging. I think that I think they knew that their daughter would always uh, beat herself up over things more than they needed to uh, <laughs> kind of enforce the, the, the law of the land. And so I think for them, and, I, and I, I think it's true, actually, for a lot of families, at the end of the day, they just want to see their kids happy. And so when they're seeing them work through challenges like figuring out their purpose in life their career their path I think ultimately at the end end of the day people just want their kids to be happy and so they were supportive and kind of allowing for that space for exploration which was great that's like what every parent should have right like the child Mm -hmm. that is more focused and driven than they could be for their child if that makes sense so this is the thing though that I've realized over time being in the classroom and then just working with with schools with with teachers is that not all students are like that. And I think that is something that we have to really recognize, especially, I mean, especially given who, who, who are the people who eventually become teachers um, and then kind of the myriad of students that they have in their classrooms. And so that, that piece of empathy, I think becomes really, really important. Yeah. I often think about that because like you, I was the obedient student and I Mm -hmm. loved pleasing people and not all my students fit that profile at Mm -hmm. all. And I look at my son growing up and he's just starting JK. I'm like, oh yeah, you're not going to be like me in school. (laughs) Like you're going to be a very different person. (laughs) And I think about how often teachers are women, how we're often designing like for who we were as students. And that doesn't Mm -hmm. fit every learner. That is a very- absolutely. Yeah. It's a, and so this is why I'm excited to talk to you about competency-based learning, because the way that schools often are set up don't really fit all students' needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But I want to go back. So you were in independent schools for a number mm-hmm. of years. How did you make the choice to leave the classroom and go into your work with Global Online Academy? Like, tell me about that moment. Yeah. So I had been, I'd been teaching English for a number of years. And eventually one of my responsibilities that I assumed as people do in the independent school world used to start wearing hats um, is I started to, I worked as a director of a fellowship program. And so uh, the last school that I was at was in the process of really thinking about how to further diversify teaching faculty in independent schools. And so we wanted to develop a fellowship program that really supported candidates from underrepresented populations in moving into the independent school teaching sphere. 
what I loved about that experience is that it really gave me a taste for kind of the project management pieces. How can you sort of run with ideas? Um, and it leveraged, I think, my teaching skills in a different way. And that was really exciting. And so I think I'd reached a point where I was pretty comfortable in the classroom. I was like, okay, conceivably, I could keep doing this for the rest of my life and I'll be fine. Um, but what might it look like to kind of push myself and what might it look like to kind of go down another path within education? So it was really a way for me to kind of see what else can I do beyond being in the classroom? And so um, GOA kind of fit that in a lot of ways because it was dealing with some of the pressing issues in education, but you weren't as kind of locked into the day-to-day -day of, of, of teaching and kind of being in a school environment. There was a little bit more space to kind of play around with ideas and start to make those connections. I love that. So mm -hmm. let's, for those of people who are listening that don't know what Global Online Academy is, how could you explain that? Like, what is this learning resource for teachers? Yeah, so GOA originated as a student program. So it, the idea was how can we develop high quality online learning experiences for students and really leverage a network to make sure that students are getting access to high quality teachers and passion-based courses. And so it started 10 years ago, really just as a way to provide online courses for students. And then from that really bloomed a myriad of things. We, we have a design lab now, and then the professional learning side, which was really about how to, can you scale the impact on students? And one of the ways in which to do that is really by providing training and support for teachers. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing has really been around courses around educator programs, workshops. Last year with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, we actually ended up serving about 30,000 educators in making the adjustment from brick and mortar to online and hybrid. And that wow. was really valuable for us in terms of furthering our mission as an organization. Did you anticipate that? So once school started locking <laughs> down, did you and like the other executive members of GOA set down like, oh gosh, well, this is going to be huge. Or did it catch you by surprise? Like, how did that land? So, so I remember I was actually, I was traveling for on behalf of GOA in the month of February and actually going to a couple of our schools that we work with in person. And I believe the NAIS conference was in the last week of February, second to last week of February. And that was the moment, I think, as all these school leaders were together, the, the realization that, you know, we're probably not going to be in person next month. We're going to need help developing the infrastructure, thinking through the pedagogy and really adapting to a different type of learning environment. And so I, I think from there, I don't think we ever anticipated 30,000 educators, but we definitely thought we would maybe reach folks in our network. But I, the scale, um, I think, quickly outpaced <laughs> what we were used to. What would be a typical, um, you said 30,000 over the month or over the year? Over the year, over the so year. So what would be a typical year for GOA in terms of teachers? I mean, uh, probably around, I would say, 1,500. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's how I found about you. So our school became a member school. And then, you know, I did a summer course uh, while I was still on mat leave. I was like, you know, nursing the baby and having mm -hmm. like some readings going on. 
And it was phenomenal. I was really excited. I'm like, how have I never heard of you before? So I'm sure that, you know, out of those 30,000 people, folks were like, this is mind blowing. This is so exciting. And there's so many resources there, like just Mm -hmm. articles that people can read, courses that people can do, free resources that you have. It must be really fun to work there too. It is. And it, to circle back to something I said at the beginning, you know, I talked about really wanting to help people. And I think the power in working for an organization like this is that you really get that sense of impact. And not only that, but you have a really clear understanding of what people's needs are um, just in, in the day to day. And, and you're able then to kind of pull these threads across schools really all around the world in terms of what are the patterns that are emerging and what might be the next steps to really support teachers. Yeah, it's almost like, and I'm sure you could say this much better than I could, but it's like you're doing research at the same time as you're offering training and support mm-hmm. and professional development. Like you're mm-hmm. able to get something and consolidate. And then probably I assume design courses based on those needs. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you really want to take it down to teaching terms, it's that formative assessment piece, right? You're putting stuff out there, you're getting feedback, you're seeing where people are in their learning, and then you're kind of thinking, what are the next steps to help people move forward? Um, and better students. Well, let's talk a little bit about how I found you. So you had been Mm -hmm. doing a lot of writing on competency-based learning, which Mm -hmm. I love. And every, I'm going to link to everything that I've read from you because the way that you're able to explain what competency-based learning is, it just sounds so obvious and so logical. And as a teacher, I'm reading, I'm like, yes, I love this. Like everything that you write in these articles, it just is so clear and intuitive. So for those people who have no idea what I'm talking about, what is competency-based learning? Sure. So competency-based learning is, or CBL, um, is a system that's designed to ensure that all students develop the skills they need to succeed in school and beyond. And so really to achieve this goal, CBL aims to mirror how people learn, work, and succeed in, in the world. So it prioritizes agency, it encourages adaptability, and it really reflects the cultures and expectations that our students will encounter in the future. So it's essentially like setting them up to be able to learn in the way that they're going to be learning outside of the walls of school. Exactly. It's all about that lifelong learning uh, and allowing students some measure of choice, voice, and agency and how they interact with and engage with their learning as well. So I'm sure that you've heard this quite a bit and, you know, making big shifts in classroom practice is uh, difficult for a lot of teachers because we're exhausted and burnt out and stretched Mm -hmm. and just trying to figure out meet and zoom can be exhausting. (laughs) What have you noticed in your practice that teachers are doing to shift more in towards a CBL approach? Yeah. So that's, that's a really good question. So I'll start by saying the central goals of competency-based learning are really around these three pillars of agency, equity, and transfer. So, and I mentioned this just now, but agency in the sense that students have voice and choice and what, where, and how they learn. Equity in that all students are empowered and provided with the support that they need to meet high expectations. And then transfer this idea that students can take what they've learned and extend it and apply it to new contexts. And so in a lot of ways, what CBL is aiming to do, it's not a new concept in and of itself. 
but it is a synthesis of all of these different ideas like universal design for learning, backwards design, inquiry-based learning, all of that. It's really bringing it together in a cohesive system. And so what folks have started to realize, I think, with CBL is that it's giving them a language that they can use in how they're reimagining some of the learning that's taking place in online and hybrid, certainly, but also really across a variety of contexts. And so I would say for teachers that are interested in making the transition to CBL, philosophically, I would say the first step is to start by articulating the why um, in a very clear and succinct way. Why, why are you feeling that need for change? Um, and the reason why is if you can't articulate your why, it's going to be a lot harder to kind of stay the course mm. when you come across bumps in the road. Uh, because CBL is not a pedagogy, it's a system, there's a lot more that kind of goes into play. And so that ha- having that North Star, or that why you're making the shift uh, is really important for actually doing it. And that, that actually helps provide some, I think, some protection against the bumps that might come up. Practically, the first step, though, has to be in identifying your competencies, because those skills are going to be the unifying principles of your course. The competencies will inform how you structure your curriculum, the content you select, how you assess and provide feedback, and also how you design learning experiences. So that's on the teacher side. On the student side, it's actually going to inform how students talk about and understand their learning and what they're orienting themselves towards. And so in making this transition to CBL, what you're doing is you're making a shift from a content-based approach to a course, to a much more skills-based approach. Um, and so that, that's why sort of identifying competencies becomes very, very important early on because they govern the universe of your course. Um, and for teachers, it's really a matter of asking themselves, what are those evergreen skills that are going to matter, not only in school, but in college and career and life? Um, And which of these skills just transcend any one discipline as well? Yeah. And I think that a lot of teachers have really noticed that the content really needed to get scaled way back during Mm -hmm. this pandemic. And so not only were a lot of educators trying to figure out, well, what are the key content that I do need to hold on to, but why am I teaching this content? Like what is, what is the bigger picture that this piece of knowledge or this key understanding is serving when you're saying that we're really moving more towards skills with Mm competency-based learning, is there space to include, you know, big ideas and big picture understandings as one of the competencies? Like could a competency be, I understand that and then fill in the blank? Yeah, it can. So I think one thing to realize, let me backtrack, is that there is a tendency when you say, oh, you're moving into a skills-based approach to kind of just put content and skills in opposition to each other, but that's not really what CBL is getting at. It's, it's kind of, it's more about that shift in focus. So as opposed to thinking of your curriculum and kind of organizing it unit by unit and kind of letting the content drive decisions, it's much more about grounding it and elevating what are those essential skills and using that as a way to make decisions. And so part of that is you're still really wrestling with the content but you're also then elevating, okay, what are the, the pieces here that are transferable? So if I'm trying to understand a math concept, for example, 
what are some of the decision-making processes that I'm using there that I can then take, extract, and apply to other situations? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's really helpful. How have teachers transitioned to a CBL approach while still having standardized testing in their schools? Like if there's like this pressure to have to teach content that they know will be part of some kind of test that their students have to do, which I think for the record is ridiculous in a pandemic, but that's still (laughs) existing. Um, Is it still possible to do more of a competency-based approach while still having the pressure of this like exterior test looming? Yeah, that, I mean, it's really challenging. I'm not going to mince words there in terms of trying to undertake uh, an approach that really is putting learning first versus a test that's putting achievement first. And so one of the pieces that we've seen teachers really do, and there are examples of teachers who have, who are taking on a CBL based approach in an AP setting. And a lot of it comes down to, for the APs in particular, how are you giving students the skills they need to then tackle the content independently? So as opposed to the onus being solely on the teacher to kind Mm -hmm. of shepherd students through these pieces of curriculum, how can you organize the AP into units that students are able to kind of navigate on their own? And part of that, if you're using a CBL-based approach, it means you've elevated those skills and spent time on that. So then Students are making choices, they have playlists, maybe they're going through parallel units. And that's kind of been one of the ways in which AP educators in particular have tried to navigate uh, some of the complications that come from standardized testing. Mm, Yeah, that's really good. Um, With the teachers that you work with that have been using a CBL approach in their classroom, um, what do you notice they're doing differently throughout the whole year? Like, how are they setting things up? What are they doing um, with different units and different courses? Like bring us into like a classroom that you see doing CBL. Yeah, so I think the biggest change that we see is how time fundamentally is restructured to create more opportunities for students to revisit, reassess and really practice their learning. I think there's a fundamental truth that educators often forget. um, And that's the fact that the students we have, they're going through school for the very first time. And so while we each year as educators, we're actually revisiting and deepening our understanding of the topics that we teach for our students, it's often the first time they're learning those skills, uh, whether it's composing argumentative essays or analyzing chemical reactions. And so it does take some students much more time to learn these new skills and then others less and not everyone learns at the same rate or pace. And so when we at GOA work with teachers, one of the first questions that we often ask them is to really identify when was the last time you learned something new? (laughs) How long did it take you to understand that thing? And when did you realize you knew how to do whatever that thing was? Um, Those questions are important because they provide a point of, or a way to empathize with students. um, And it allows them to start taking stock of how they might want to rethink time in their classrooms to really facilitate that student learning. Um, And so we've seen just some incredible changes, I think, take place from just the way in which folks organize their curriculum. Um, 
one of the central pieces of CBL is this idea that students are progressing based on mastery and not seat time. So it's not about just sitting through a semester of AP microeconomics and then kind of getting your, your B minus and moving on. It's really about uh, students advancing based on their ability to demonstrate skills. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that in CBL environments, students need multiple opportunities to really practice and demonstrate those skills. And so teachers have done things like incorporate a spiral curriculum where they're revisiting uh or not revisiting, they're looking at concepts, but using the same lenses. So we have a psychology teacher, for example, who works with us, who she has students keep returning back to the biological, sociocultural, and uh, cognitive lenses and psych. And so as they move through each unit, they're practicing the skills of applying those lenses over time. And that's a way in which they're starting to really deepen their understanding and not just kind of blow by um, some of those concepts. And so that those pieces have been really important um, in ensuring that students aren't just kind of moving through the curriculum, but we're kind of meeting our students where they're at and then providing the support that they need um, rather than, again, just moving them along. Yeah, it, it's such a big shift. And, you know, this is exactly what I was talking about earlier, how when you hear it explained, you're like, of course, like it's mm-hmm. not about the time that people sit in a classroom. It's also looking at like, what is actually a grade telling me about how much a student has actually learned rather than, um, you know, how on time their assignments were, like actually looking differently mm-hmm. about what are we actually measuring in a class? Okay, I'm gonna- Yeah, I'd actually, I could actually, I could have kicked myself. Sometimes you look back on your past self as a teacher just the amount of time I spent just knocking points off for there not being a staple on a paper in my mind. Why am I focusing on this? My students don't like, that's not really where I want their energy to be. It actually is around constructing a thesis and using evidence to support the claims they're making. It's, I don't really care if it's in Times New Roman font. Um, (laughs) And so those, I think those pieces though, they start to come to the surface when you think in terms of competencies, because you're really prioritizing you know, what actually is important in terms of um, what you'll need for your career and beyond the classroom. I want to walk you into my classroom. If I could, I would hijack you and bring you to Toronto and have you (laughs) like watch what's going on in my room. Um, Just to give you some background, I also teach at an independent school and I have an amazing English department. And a couple of years ago, we just pared down all of the ministry expectations to like 12 really big things that we decided would cycle through every year that a student is in English. So it's like the same core expectations Mm -hmm. that show up again and again. I struggle as a teacher with students who are needing more time. Like, so for Mm -hmm. example, we might be working on a poetry assignment and 75% of the students are kind of like going around the same pace. The students who are going too fast, fine. I can get them to do extension pieces or to rest and to read, but it's the 25% or like the 10% that really need more time. And by having that more time, they may be taking work into homework time. They may be coming in before or after school, which leads them to burn out more. And like, just to get them to show that competency of like those core skills takes more, takes more mm-hmm. time, takes more coaching. And then they feel further behind. 
when we're looking not at like a time-based approach, some kids need more time and we only have so many hours Mm -hmm. and there's only, especially during a pandemic, you don't want to keep them on screen all the time. Mm -hmm. So how do we support our students in that way? That's great. I think this is where the partnership with students comes into play in in a huge way. Um, So how in this moment then can we empower our students to identify what, what are the areas that they need to work on and kind of have them really make choices in partnership with the teacher of, okay, I understand that these are the areas where I'm struggling right now. I can only maybe tackle one of these. And if I devote my attention to one of these, I can then start to approach mastery in that. And so I think this is where having students curate you know, what are the learning targets I'm going to focus on? Why am I going to focus on them? And here's how I'm going to show evidence over time. I think that piece is one of the ways in which we can then support our students. Because at the end of the day, you know, our students are there to learn, right? And so we don't want to, we don't want to hold them to an arbitrary timeline of this is where all of our students should be but rather how are we making sure, and this gets to that equity piece as well, right? How are we giving all of our students the support that they need to kind of meet high expectations? Would you also redesign a project? So if everyone's writing like a couple of poems in part of this project, if the student really just needs to focus on these two really clear competencies to redesign a project for that student, you're like, okay, this will be the most efficient use of our time. You're going to do this different version that will still get to these key goals, but you're going to do it in a slightly different way. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example, actually. So one of our teachers for, uh, we have a course, a student program course on genocide and human rights. And so her, I think it's her, her summative uh, assessment for that course is really having students. So she identifies, I think it's five or so learning outcomes that students need to demonstrate mastery of at the conclusion of the unit. And so those skills, which are around things like argumentation, evidence, sort of synthesis, those are going to be common to all students but then she offers them choice in how they're gonna demonstrate their understanding. So a student who might be more of an artist or kind of a visual thinker, they can then take those skills and apply them to a visual medium. You might have another student who is really engaged or is interested in community activism. Maybe they're doing a campaign, but again, it's centering those outcomes. And so offering that kind of choice and product while still holding all students accountable to the same uh, outcomes and, and uh, skills is kind of a way in which to offer that differentiation as well. Yeah, that makes it so much more clear. The, I, I would love for you to explain the difference between CBL, competency-based learning, mm-hmm. universal design for learning, and also standards-based assessment. Like, how do you see these three things kind of, I mean, maybe there's more that I'm forgetting about, but mm-hmm. how are these things unique or complementary or touching on each other? Yeah, I'll, I'll start, I guess, first with the difference between CBL and standards-based, just because that there is more of a clear difference, I think, between those two, um, but sometimes they are used interchangeably when, okay. when they're actually a little bit separate. And so um, there's actually a great article by Redesign that parses out the differences But I do want to highlight two that I think are good anchor points for distinguishing CBL versus standards-based. 
Um, so the first is that CBL is much more student focused. It's really about what students know, will, will know and will be able to do. Whereas standards based is often tied to teaching targets. So what mm -hmm. will the teacher be teaching or should be teaching? Um, so that's kind of the first piece is that the focus is different. CBL is much more geared towards learning, whereas standards based is much more about the teaching aspects mm -hmm. of, of school. The other major difference is that competencies often sit above standards in terms of their grain size. So standards are very much tied to the content of a particular discipline. They're really, really discipline focused, whereas competencies are transdisciplinary. Mm. So let's see, for example, um, a competency that's developed cohesive arguments with strong justifications for positions that's something you could find in a history course. You could find that in a science class, but then also in the world beyond the classroom, a student would need that competency for mock trial or model UN, um, or even at the workplace. This is a competency I have to really work on pretty regularly in order to do my job well. And so um, that's kind of the other piece that comes into play with CBL. The competencies are very much um, not restricted to a given content area. I can imagine like a team of educators all teaching the same grade, teaching the same students coming together and deciding like, okay, what are the key competencies that we want to see in science and in geography and in history and in phys ed? Like that, mm -hmm. that's actually when students see those kinds of connections made, it's like, oh, got it. We're doing the same thing. Yeah. And it's huge for them. And that's, I think that's really the key piece, right? It's all about that clarity, right? They're, they're, and I'm not the first to say this, but there is a, we talked about kind of being able to play the game of school and kind of follow the rules. There's a lot of that that happens and that there shouldn't be a hidden curriculum around how to navigate school. And I think what CBL does is that it makes very clear, this is what you're working towards. We're not going to make this a mystery for you. You know, the work that you're going to be doing is hard and challenging. That's where the rigor should come in. But the expectations aren't the piece that should be challenging and difficult to figure out. Um, mm. I think that's really important as well with, with CBL. And, but it sounds very similar to universal design for learning to me. So can you clarify like how those are distinct and where they overlap? So in terms of the overlap, a lot of it, I think, ties into sort of the equity piece that we were, we were talking about earlier in terms of really making sure that all students are being empowered to learn and they're being provided with that support. Um, and so that can look very different for different students. It might be similar for a certain band of students, but it's really about, again, making sure that we're not bypassing our students and kind of moving them along, but really designing very intentionally for all of our students to have access to what we're providing. And so I would say that uh, universal design, it, it's not, I would say it's not distinct or separate from CBL, but it's something that CBL is really taking into account, um, in terms of the overall system. Cool. I want to just like talk to you forever, but I realize that like you're a busy woman <laughs> and that you have things to do and people to teach and to inspire. Uh, we close all of our conversations out with a ticket out the door, which is just uh -huh. a bunch of silly rapid fire questions, which you cannot prepare for. Um, are you up for ticket out the dooring? 
I am up for it. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite book to read to young people? Without a doubt, hands down, it was 1984. It did become more challenging, I would say, towards the, the latter part of my career, um, given what was happening in U.S. politics. But I do believe there, there's so much in that book in terms of understanding the power of language, in terms of making sense of Western history, in terms of making sense of the role that government and, and society play in our lives. And I think it's one of those books that will probably never lose its relevance. And it's just, it's, it's a book that rewards rereading, returning back to it. And the applications are just right there. It's just one of those books where I've never had a student ask, why are we, why are we reading this? Because mm -hmm. the applications are just so apparent. And it's one, uh, I used to teach sophomores and that was the book that would always light them up because they started to recognize pieces of themselves of the world that they lived in. And they were able to then kind of make decisions about how they wanted to operate in this world. So definitely that one. So good. Uh, what is the best gift you ever received as a teacher? <laughs> the best gift? Um, I received... I received this uh, little necklace once from my advisees that has, um, it has a duck on it. And there is a story behind this. Um, when I got my first set of advisees, they were very, very shy. And I just could not for the life of me figure out how to break the ice with them. And it just took so long to kind of get them to warm up. And I don't remember the context in which this happened. I think I was just trying to make conversation. And we talked about the duck and cover videos from the 1950s. And that amused them to, to no end. And so because of the duck and cover videos, they at one point got me a gift of this little duck necklace as a, as a reminder of how we, how we broke the ice. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Do you still wear it ever? Does it still I do. show up? I do. I sometimes, if I lead workshops, I'll sometimes put it on. Just mm. it kind of as a reminder of of why I'm doing what I'm doing. That sounds really sentimental. You can cut that out too. No, but... it's beautiful. <laughs> Staying in. Staying in. <laughs> What's your favorite thing to snack on during the day? Oh, I love I love a Milano cookie. I think that's mm. that's a. Uh... <laughs> that's a constant snack in, in the household for sure. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Oh, so the first thing that I do is I always read the New York times newsletter mm. um, because I like to walk into the world just a little bit prepared for, for what yeah. happened while I was asleep. So yeah. there's always something in there. You're like, what that just happened? <laughs> uh, what's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Um, I usually pray before I go to bed. Mm. What is the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Oh, I recently watched, I'm going to butcher the French, but Lupin, which is a French uh, crime show on Netflix. And it just, it, it's just lovely. It takes you out of this world. It's very sophisticated. Yeah. And, and it, I don't know, I feel feel like I'm back in Paris when I watch it. <laughs> mm, I've heard really good things. I have not started that one yet though. Uh, pie or cake? 
Oh, cake, 100%. <laughs> Beach or mountains? Oh, so I grew up in Rhode Island, and so it's always beach. I love the mountains, but it's always beach. Yeah. <laughs> Spring or fall? Uh, same thing, fall, just being from Rhode Island. Although now that I live in Texas, I have discovered a newfound appreciation for uh, the blue bonnets mm. coming up in mm. April. Tacos or nachos? Oh, tacos. <laughs> That's <laughs> living done. in Texas. Yeah. yeah. What would be your last meal on earth? Oh, that's a really good question. My last meal on earth, my last meal on earth would probably be, it would probably, oh, gosh, now I have to really think about it. My last meal on earth would probably be a death by chocolate cake. Mm. I think, I think if I'm going to go out, go by death by chocolate, that is perfectly appropriate. I love it. I just am noticing like how many of these ticket out the door questions are centered around food, which I think really captures a lot about what's important. Yes. I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That's, That's, I think you can learn a lot about a person just based on like what they're into eating and like, what are their Mm -hmm. favorite food things? Uh, Who is your favorite edu celebrity? Oh, my favorite edu celebrity. Um, I really enjoy uh, Alfie Cohn. I think Mm. he says some very provocative things, which I Mm. appreciate. He says the things that I wish I could say more regularly, but I think he, I think he can get away with it right, right yeah. now, but yeah, um, but yeah, I appreciate his, his dry wit and unflinching analysis of the state of education. <laughs> he says it like it is, and it's yeah. often very much yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, um, on the flip side though, I like Catelyn Tucker and Jennifer Gonzalez. I think they're both doing tremendous mm-hmm. work in terms of just providing really practical yes. strategies for teachers. So, uh, you know, in terms of People I'd probably want to hang out with, it would mm-hmm. be those two. But yeah, not the contrarians, but so so <laughs> important and speaking truth as well. Yeah. What do you think is the future of learning? So I have a, I have a theory that is not I haven't committed to paper yet, but I'm really thinking about it. Um, I think if anything, this last year has really disrupted not only just education, but a lot of industries writ large. Um, And I've been thinking a lot actually about how TV has really been disrupted. I mean, there, there was an article recently by Sam Esmail or not, it was an interview with him where he was talking about really thinking through his next series and how he might start by releasing just one episode one week and then maybe take a break and then release another three episodes in a batch and then that serve a story arc and then another two episodes that are character deep dive. And so all that is to say is he's really thinking about the nature of time when it comes to delivering a particular story. We're past the point of just the weekly 30 minute, one hour I'm delivering, I'm delivering TV in this way, and this is what you're getting. And instead, he's kind of rethinking, hmm, what can I do so that I'm doing service to the story as opposed to these logistical constraints? Hmm. And I wonder if education will follow that model as well in terms of, yeah, not every lesson needs to be 45 minutes every single day. 
what if we had a concentrated block of time here and you're pursuing this topic? What if this other topic doesn't take as long? So maybe we only spend 30 minutes on it. Um, and then using that in combination with online learning, with place-based learning, I think we're gonna see, maybe not in the next few years, but certainly, you know, four to five years out, this playing with time and schedule in some pretty interesting ways. That is really good to look forward to. I think that it, and it totally <laughs> ties into what you're saying about CBL. Um, I, I look forward to that future, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I am so happy that I got to talk to you. You have just a wonderful way of seeing education. I can totally understand why you're doing the work that you're doing and why you're not a lawyer. I <laughs> love your brain. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. I have so many quotes and notes written down after this conversation. I am so grateful for Sarah sharing her time and thinking today. If you want to find out more about CBL, you can jump over to globalonlineacademy.org or check out the articles by Sarah that started me down this journey in the first place. I've linked to them all in the show notes. Don't you wish that podcasts had a like button or a little heart you could tap to show your appreciation or enjoyment of an episode? It's kind of weird that it doesn't exist, huh? Instead, you can give a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I read every one of them and it's a small way you can show your appreciation for the show. The more ratings and reviews we get, the easier it is for other awesome people like you to find the show. The other way, of course, is to engage on Instagram. I'm at teaching underscore tomorrow. So tell me what you thought about the episode, send me a DM and tap, tap, tap to your heart's content. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep empathizing with your students. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.